The Audible is proud to have Trader Joe's as its presenting sponsor for 2018. Trader Joe's, where it's always game time and the game is value. What's value? At Trader Joe's, value is where quality and price come together. Snacks, great value. Drinks, great value. Fruits and veggies, great value. Learn more at TraderJoe's.com and at Trader Joe's on Instagram. Welcome back to the latest edition of The Audible. I'm Bruce Feldman, joined as always by my colleague Stu Mandel. Stu, we have a unique show for our listeners today. We actually double book guests. There's a huge story that has been really under the radar for a while at the University of New Mexico, but the one of the, the reporter who's really been the most uh, dogged in exposing some of this is going to join us today, Daniel Libet. And that story involves a scandal involving Bob Davey, the New Mexico head coach, with some really disturbing allegations. A bit later, we're going to be joined by Derek Chang, who is the director of player personnel at the University of Texas. They just finished off what I think most recruiting sites have regarded as a top three recruiting class under Tom Herman. And his path to the University of Texas has been really, really fascinating. So we're going to talk about what he does how they do it, but also how he got there. But before we did that, we really wanted to also dig into this New Mexico story because, as we said, it's pretty disturbing. Yeah, so we want to make clear we have two guests today for completely different reasons. They're not related to each other in any way. I had We had been talking for a while about how you know there are all these behind-the-scenes roles at college football programs now that most people, you know, you hear the title, Director of Player Personnel, but you don't necessarily know what they do. So we're pleased for Derek to come on and, and fill us in about that. In the meantime, while that was being lined up, the story broke Friday about Bob Davey being suspended for 30 days. And so we wanted to bring on an expert to talk about that. And Daniel Livett is the expert, I would say, from starting his own site that chronicles New Mexico uh, athletics in an investigative way, and that's nmfishbowl.com. So we're going to start off with that interview. And then after that, we'll get to our interview with Derek Chang. Joining us now, it's Daniel Libet from the site nmfishbowl.com, covers New Mexico athletics, and obviously New Mexico is in the news right now for the 30-day suspension of Bob Davey after a couple, actually a couple of investigations, maybe even more than a couple. Daniel, that's why we wanted to bring you in. This is a very confusing story for anybody who's coming in late. Uh, If there's any, I don't know, kind of kind of brief way to do this. Can you kind of bring us up to speed on on how we got here? Yeah, sure. And thanks for having me on the podcast. Mm -hmm. So at the end of last sports season in the spring, the University of New Mexico does, as other colleges are required to do by the NCAA, they conduct a, a series of exit interviews with outgoing athletes across the sports. And in the course of those interviews, several football players brought some allegations up to members of the faculty senate who were the interviewers. Some of these allegations mirrored those that had been whispered about or murmured about in the program for a number of years. Allegations that Bob Davey, UNM football coach, had been uh, physically abusive towards players, had 
said things that were racially insensitive. One of the things was that he may have uh, improperly interfered with the athlete drug testing process. So from that point on, the uh, school launched uh, an internal investigation through its Office of Equal Opportunity that went on for months, really without any kind of um, there there. Uh, Davey had been interviewed initially last summer. Uh, and then finally, towards the fall, somehow this galvanized, and I'm not still entirely sure what was the trigger, but somehow this galvanized such that the university decided to hire a former federal judge to conduct a kind of a further review of some of the allegations. He was on the case for a couple of months. When he was done, he recommended to the school that they hire a law firm to further his work. And the investigation really turned on some of the similar player abuse or inappropriate conduct uh, claims that had been initially broached. And then it really uh, focused uh, or honed in on allegations that Bob Davey had improperly involved himself and perhaps improperly interfered in campus sexual assault allegations against Lobo football players. There was uh, three or four of these that had actually become uh, that were made public. And that was sort of where things were left. Uh, they hired a firm out of Chicago called Hogan Marin, the partner of whom is a former general counsel of the Department of Education. Uh, they spent about a month or two. And then last week, uh, the university uh, produced its reports, the Hogan Marin report, the OEO report, and then handed down a 30-day suspension to Bob Davey without really expressly saying what he was guilty of, um, to put it that way. Davey, in turn, at the end of last week, uh, has put in an appeal for his suspension, saying that UNM doesn't have any right to do this, that they mishandled the investigations, that they didn't go through proper due process. Um, and so we uh, find this kind of in a further murky state and, and just kind of a general mess in an athletic department that has you know, been scandalized from one thing or another over the last couple of years. Okay, Daniel, a couple of things. So when you say last season, I believe you mean the 2016 season, not the one that that just concluded. So uh, for people who haven't followed Daniel's site, it's, it's an impressive amount of journalism that he's been putting a spotlight on some stuff way before a lot of other people. I, I feel like for a bunch of us in the national media who hadn't paid a ton of attention to, to New Mexico football, some of the work you've done was actually the first time people had really kind of we're like, whoa, what's, what the hell is going on down there? A couple of things to maybe to, to footnote on this. So Davey's probably going to lose about $75,000 of his salary as part of this. Uh, I guess he makes uh, almost $800,000, around $800,000 because it's unpaid leave if the suspension's carried out. Two things that also, and, and the charges that are detailed in here are pretty disturbing to say the least and we'll get to one of those specifically in a second but two things kind of jumped out at me when i was reading about this at the end of last week was the first was the timing of it they waited till the 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 uh, investigations were completed i think in the middle of january yet they waited till the day after national signing day to release this which i thought was seems rather dubious the other thing and i'll ask you daniel if, if i'm reading too much into this but his suspension was set to end one day after the new president was to start at the school. I guess the new president is coming from Missouri, I believe. And so it's curious that the interim chancellor would suspend him and put it in the hands of the new president. Is that just coincidence or what do you make of that? 
I, I would I read in the same kind of cynicism that I think a lot of people did when they, uh, first of all, as you noted, yeah, there's, there's not a more cynical move you could do than announce this the day after signing period. And then, yes, the, the sort of kicking the can to the next uh, president is another issue. I mean, the, the university, not to go too in the weeds with uh, the intra-politics of the University of New Mexico, but it is, it is seized by a power vacuum that sort of vitiates the entire campus and has really kind of informed what's gone on in the athletic department, too. As you may recall, the uh, Athletic, the former athletic director was recently forced out at the end of last year, um, or in the middle of last year, I should say, because of financial mismanagement questions at, at the University of New Mexico. There's been scandals involving the uh, payments of, of suites at the pit, um, and now you have the Bob Davy thing, and this is all being consumed by a kind of civil war that's broken out on campus and the leadership. And so what you see in this is a kind of a lack of consensus at the top of the university of how to exactly approach this investigation, this kind of rather inflammatory investigation uh, involving the highest paid employee in the state of New Mexico. And yeah, and I think the, the kind of muddiness of this and the, and the cynicism uh, that's rightly felt about this is a byproduct of the fact that there's different factions wanting different things out of this investigation. There were people in leadership who wanted Davey fired. There were people in leadership who didn't want Davey to undergo an investigation at all. And then there's a $1.6 million buyout that the university would have to pay in order uh, to fire him without cause. And that's money that, because of a whole bunch of other financial problems they have, the university probably doesn't have at its hand. And so, you know, they're, they're in a, a very uncomfortable position. And I think ultimately, this is going to blow up much worse than it would have otherwise done if somebody had the gumption to make a hard decision much earlier on in the process. Okay, so you mentioned the, you know, the, the financial issues and the buyout issue. And so it's important for us to note that this report from the law firm, which was the second report, um, looks into basically two major subjects of of allegations. One is whether players, injured players are being pressured to play. And the law firm ultimately concludes it can't confirm that. And then in terms of Davey interfering with sexual assault allegations, it also said it couldn't confirm that or come to that conclusion. Although there is one fact in there that we find very troubling that the report does confirm, which is one of his players is accused of sexual assault. He, it seems like reading between the lines, he basically sent his players out to look for dig up dirt on this woman. Another player finds video of her, something about her being bitter about a breakup. And it's not even clear if she's talking about the same person. And Davey brings that player to the police to make sure the police see this video. So they're not denying, or they are stating that as fact. They are not saying, oh, we can't confirm that. And yet the law firm stopped short of saying that he actually interfered with the investigation. Are you surprised by that conclusion? I'm not just because I've had now the experience of dealing with a kind of moral cowardice of, of the University of New Mexico. I mean, first of all, and we see this in a lot of universities, and I think people have to have a, a, a good understanding of what it means when a university in particular hires an outside law firm. This is not 
this is not a law enforcement agency. The uh, the outside law firm is is a is hired to basically mitigate risk for the university. And so in this case, the risk that they're trying to mitigate is the risk of Davy fire uh, suing the university for improperly firing him and potentially not only having to pay the full buyout that they would owe him, but then the legal fees and perhaps other kinds of of um, of uh, damages, and then the risk that perhaps other people, like uh, co-eds on campus who have accused football players of sexual assault, may file a lawsuit because of how the university perhaps mishandled allegedly this or, or those sorts of investigations. And so they gave this law firm two months to uh, review things, conduct a handful of interviews. There was no way you're going to get to the bottom of any of this in two months' time, even with the work that had been done by the uh, OEO at UNM. And so, you know, they kind of ultimately threw their hands up in the air um, and said, you know, well, some of this stuff, you know, seems interesting, and there's some witnesses saying this, but, yeah, we can't make a dispositive statement after looking at this for two months, and the university didn't show any interest collectively Effectively, to you know, further the investigation beyond that, they gave Hogan Mayor and the law firm just a set amount of time and a set budget, and and basically, unless they could come up with a silver bullet in in a in 60 days, they were not going, they were not willing to uh, to pull the trigger on a on a termination. This um, this specific issue, and I I'll, let me preface this by saying, you know, I worked with Bob David ESPN for a while, so in full disclosure, I'm going to put that out there. Some of the stuff that has been alleged here is really disturbing allegations. But I wanted to get back to the one Stu just brought up, Daniel, because I think in this day and age in college athletics in 2018, whether it's at Michigan State or came down the pipeline at Penn State, and when it comes to to protocol of how things are handled and what, again, what Stu referenced as fact, that this is the kind of thing when coaches – get actively involved in in legal matters especially involving sexual violence this is the kind of thing where you know again and you I understand what you're talking about where you know the school court investigated it to, to to worry about legal entanglements but this is the kind of thing where I think coaches are going to get fired for it and my guess is that most schools would, in the case of New Mexico, and maybe, and you'd speak, be able to speak to this as a longtime New Mexico person more than, than Stu or I, I mean, as a matter of just the economics of their, they can't afford to fire Bob Davey in the way that when Arizona looked at Rich Rodriguez's case and they had investigated it and they said, all right, we're going to pay $5 million, can't technically fire him for cause, but there's a lot of stuff here that we're uncomfortable with. Whereas New Mexico, it's a much lower price tag, but New Mexico doesn't have that kind of money, so they're just going to take whatever bad PR and however however disgraceful this may look and just say, hey, we're going to take our lumps and ride it out. Yeah, I, I think that's basically what it is. I think, yeah, they, they don't want to make the $1.6 million, take the $1.6 million hit now, you know, instead of potentially having, I mean, even in the most just, mercenary terms having to pay more later uh in in the in the case of if there's other kinds of legal action that's uh that's that's um undertaken by other people because of all this and the other thing is is that 
you know, there's a lot of entanglements here. You have one, a football coach, but then you have an office of equal opportunity. You have the university's general counsel. You have the, the interim president who was overseeing this investigation. You have the former president who's still employed by the university. You know, you, it, it, there's a possibility that if Bob Davey goes down, a lot of other people go down with him. And I think that's the chess game that that you know, some people on on the campus are trying to play, which is okay. If if, if we could just sort of get Davy on this, that's one thing. But I, I think there's a fear that other people might also lose lose their jobs um, if this thing expands. The other thing to keep in mind is the University of New Mexico was just under a Department of Justice review for over a year and a half, looking at exactly the issue of of the way that the school handles the reporting of sexual assaults on campus. I mean, they've, they've already been at the other end of a barrel of a gun from the DOJ. And so this is just one other piece of, of embarrassment and concern that's been raised subsequent to that. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it doesn't make a lot of sense from my perspective why at least you wouldn't further investigate these claims, why you would want to leave it there, and it's possible that they will. Uh, the, the New Mexico Attorney General has already publicly announced that he's going to start looking into this stuff specifically. So there's possibly uh, going to be some criminal investigation on this, at least at the state level. But, yeah, I mean, this is, you know, this is how college athletics in some ways deranges you know, higher education is it just makes people not want to make uncomfortable decisions at the time that they might best make them. One, because, you know, Davies kind of turned around the football program for one thing. So he has supporters on that. And the athletic department has just kind of, you know, bounced around from one embarrassment to the other over the last two years. And I don't know how much stomach there is to then get into protracted legal uh, litigation with the, uh, the head football coach. All right, so to put it pretty bluntly, this is really messed up. Uh, there's no other way to say it. The That one piece of, of the investigation that I shared earlier about Davey is very much mirrors the kind of thing Art Bryles went down for at Baylor. It's frankly more incriminating of the coach than anything that's come out about Mark D'Antonio or Tom Izzo in that Michigan State story, and yet all he got was a 30-day suspension. And so you, we've... Obviously, we've gotten into the financial gap here, but I'm curious if you think part of the reason they can get away with this, for lack of a better term, is that there's not the media coverage of New Mexico that there is of a Big 12 team like Baylor and a big t- a team that contends for Big 10 champions like Michigan State. I certainly think that that's part and parcel. I think the fact that, you know, I'm going to toot my own horn here, the fact that I was sort of bird-dogging this story since uh, August um, may have had some reason why they were doing, you know, why they investigated to the extent that they did. Um, I was, frankly, the only, I'm, here I am in Chicago blogging about New Mexico. I was the only outlet that was actually covering this story. And so, yeah, I think, I think you know, the, unfortunately, the reflex for a lot of institutions is that they will do the least they have to do until they feel like they're going to take a PR whacking for not doing this. But, you know, Davey, I mean, I wrote a piece in September of last year about Davey's history of kind of a rousing scandal at most of the places that he's coached at, starting when he was a, a low-level assistant at Arizona, where he was caught up in a in a scandal about uh, with a number of other coaches for falsifying travel receipts. That was 
scandal was ultimately uncovered by the Arizona Daily Star, which won a Pulitzer for it. Then he went to Tulane, and he was involved in the uh, Wallygate scandal, where he prevailed upon a low-level uh, staffer to spy on a rival. That was ultimately discovered, and the staffer who took the fall for it sued the school, uh, sued Tulane, and, and was and settled. And then when uh, Davy was at Notre Dame, replacing Lou Holtz, one of the first moves he made um, was he fired the uh, the beloved offensive line coach, Joe Moore, and Joe Moore sued the school for age discrimination and won several hundred thousand dollars in a federal age discrimination suit. Then he goes and joins Bruce at ESPN for a decade and then, you know, kind of rehabilitates his career in the in the mid-major, uh, the mid-major ranks at, at New Mexico, where there isn't the kind of media scrutiny. Um, and quite frankly, his history wasn't even really known up to that point. All the things I just mentioned had never been reported locally. And yeah, I mean, this is this is kind of what places like New Mexico become. They become the kind of rehabilitation repository for, for the fallen coaches across the college landscape and and there's not the same kind of media attention um there's not the same kind you know especially for a coach who's been able to turn around a a pretty sad football program and had some success on the field you know there's potentially even less of a of an interest to to kind of poke around on on some allegations and so yeah i think it's it's an it's an ugly commentary on on the state of things yes Stu. and just to to kind of follow up what daniel just said until a lot of this, I think Daniel's story, and I, I know it came out in the fall, and I remember reading it on a plane. I'm like, my God, this is like a lot of this stuff I had never knew. The only stuff I had heard of before was related to, I know some old Notre Dame guys who hate Bob Davey from the Joe Moore yeah. stuff. And I mean, right. with a passion and talk about just character things that just loathe him. But the other stuff I had never heard of, uh, was un- completely unaware of, until he had brought it up. So I want to circle back on this. You, you grew up a New Mexico fan, but you're in Chicago. How did, how did your site even just take, get so much momentum in, into your life where this is something that became a passion that you were going to dig into it in a way that, you know, you would think you were working for the local newspaper on investigative sites? Yeah, so my background is in political reporting, and which I had done at a national level until uh, the end of the 2016 uh, presidential election, which I was writing about for CNBC's website. And when the race was over, I wanted to take a little bit of a break, and I've had a kind of academic interest in the coverage of college athletics. I had written a story a number of years ago for the Columbia Journalism Review called The Scandal Beat, which looked at the way in which investigative reporting into college sports had really focused on NCAA violations, um, and that there's a whole bunch of, there's a whole other terrain of things that I were real ethical problems or scandals that were kind of not getting the same attention. And so I, you know, sort of with that still in my noggin, I, I kind of thought, you know, why don't I just do a little experiment here? Why don't I just try to cover one college sports team the way I think you would do it if it was just purely through the lens of public interest journalism? And so I went back to the team I rooted for as a as a kid growing up in my hometown team, it was the team I was kind of most familiar with at that point, and said, okay, let me just start making some records requests, and maybe I'll do this for a month. And I set up a WordPress blog, and then, you know, one thing led to another. And I, I'm a firm believer that if you really, you know, 
put the uh, put the screws to any any college sports program right now in the country, you will start to find stuff. I mean, in some ways, it's like being a crime reporter covering the mafia. You can't not find some stuff. And so New Mexico, because it really hadn't been scrutinized for quite some time, there was a lot of hanging fruit out there. And so I started picking it, and you know, people started coming to me with allegations that they had hoped that the local media in New Mexico would cover, but had never quite gotten around to. Um, and so one thing led to another, and this, you know, now I've been doing this for a year and a half, and uh, and the, the fruit keeps uh, producing on the trees, it appears. Well, anybody from other schools that are listening to this right now are probably terrified, because I think you're right. I think if we cloned you and put you at a bunch of different, um, just spent all your time scrutinizing one college athletic department, you'd, you'd find troubling things at, at just about anywhere and I, I just really want to we both really want to commend you for the great work you've done on New Mexico and obviously this story is still evolving so we will continue to look for your updates I appreciate it thanks so much for that all right Daniel how can people find you besides going to NM Fishbowl uh, what other ways should they uh, keep up on what you're doing yeah, so I have a Twitter account is at nmfishbowl.com. There's a New Mexico Fishbowl Facebook page, and uh, yeah, those are those are probably the means, other than going to uh, the website itself, to uh, to see all of the insanity emanating out of Albuquerque. Well, thank you for giving us this education on the story at New Mexico, and um, thanks for coming on the Audible. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, guys. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Daniel. Well, we appreciate Daniel for all his time and his dogged work covering that story. Stu, just as you've read this like I did the other day, just a basic question. Do you think Bob Davey is going to survive this and be the head coach at New Mexico in 2018? No, I don't. Now, we just went into all the reasons why he has survived for this long, but at some point more people are going to start becoming aware of what's going on there and just how disturbing it really is. I think to this point, it's managed to stay very under the radar, a very local story. But I think the more people find out about this nationally, I mean, you never know who's going to get involved. You never know what the next, I mean, you never know what the next allegation is going to be, frankly. We've certainly seen a lot of examples in the past year where once something starts to get out, somebody else feels more comfortable coming forward with something. So I don't know. I mean, this is a heck of a troubled pattern at this point. I'm just frankly I guess I'm less baffled now why he survived after hearing from Daniel about the situation at that university. But, you know, given it, it just seems I, when I read it, I was just incredulous that in this moment in time, when there is a heightened sensitivity toward our treatment of sexual assault complaints and especially the any you know mere hint of impropriety of, an, of a coach or an athletic department getting involved, that here we have a seems like a pretty concrete example of that and all it merited was a 30-day suspension i I just don't see how that holds yeah and i'm curious as to what's going to be he's appealing the suspension is that only going to bring more light on it i mean you know i had as i tweeted a few times the part where the timing you know is very dubious of how the school waited till after signing day to release it so i feel like there's a lot of blame that can go around obviously you know, and, and, you know, the thing that you and I both focused in with Daniel on this was this one specific case where it's, it, it sure looks like he, he violated protocol in a way of how these things are handled, where he got actively involved in a way that coaches should never get involved, which I'm not saying they didn't, you know, 5, 10, certainly 20 plus years ago. 
But in this day and age, when that happens, you're like, whoa, he did what? And then I don't know if it's if it's just a case of a small a small spotlight or not, but it's going to be an interesting story to see how it keeps going. So there's no real seamless way to make a transition from such a disturbing story at New Mexico to our next guest, who's talking about recruiting and signing day and how teams rosters get filled out. But as I mentioned, Stu and I both wanted to have on a personnel expert in college football who works in the business. And Texas just came off a, uh, a really touted recruiting class. And Tom Herman was effusive in his praise for his director of personnel. So with that, let's get to our guest, Derek Chang from the University of Texas. We are pleased to be joined by our guest, Derek Chang. He is director of player personnel for Texas. And as Tom Herman and, and UT closed on a elite, elite recruiting class, Tom Herman gave a lot of credit to Derek, signaling him for helping change, shape the philosophy of this 2018 class. So, Derek, we'd love to get into more about what you do and also how you got there. And first, thanks for joining us on the Audible today. No, I appreciate you guys having me. So, for people who don't know, they know there's, especially big schools, have a lot of people behind the scenes who may not be the tight ends coach or the defensive coordinator. What exactly is your role as director of player personnel at UT? Yeah, you know, I'm sure more and more college football fans are familiar with recruiting and how broad it is. And I would say just, you know, myself and along with several, you know, people in our department, it's just to manage the, the different aspects of recruiting from, you know, helping our coaches identify players to helping with the evaluation process. And also uh, when these kids get on campus, making sure their visits go really well. You know, also, you know, assisting with Coach Herman and our coordinators with just the management of, of roster numbers. All those different components are, are things that our, our department oversees and, and things that, you know, that I manage a little bit. So obviously it's up to Coach Herman and the assistants to recruit, go out and actually recruit these players. But it sounds like, would it be fair to say that you basically organize the whole operation? Yeah, I mean, uh, along with a lot of other people in my department who who do help me out, I, I do think that's fair to say. You know, uh, Coach Herman and our assistants have you know kind of final say in jurisdiction a lot of times on the players we take at each position, especially Coach uh, Herman himself. But I think the overall organization of you know how we go about recruiting them in terms of just the strategy of when these kids visit, how their visit should look like. Is, is there's so much personalization to each of these kids visits and what's important to a certain kid from Dallas may be different than a kid in Houston, Texas. So all those different things that we have, I think, like you said, organization and a hand in that. But yeah, I think just assisting our coaches with that organization is, is kind of our role. Before we get into your unique path to, uh, to UT and into, into major college football, what exactly is different about how, how this job is now than maybe before you were at Texas, you were you were with Tom at University of Houston, and then you were you guys were both on Urban Meyer's staff at Ohio State. So how how have you seen this role kind of evolve just as as things have changed in the last maybe four or five years in, in football? The biggest difference between you know I would say here at Texas and at Houston, I think the level of recruiting and just the overall daily grind of it is 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 more here. Um, I think you know it's. You know, Coach, Coach Herman says it. I think a lot of people have said it. Recruiting is really a daily it's a daily operation, and every single day you have to do it. And I think there's a lot of different maintenance to it. Um, you have to be very consistent in your communication with recruits on a daily basis. You have to think about it 
and execute it on a daily basis. And so, you know, not to say it doesn't happen other places, but especially at a place like Texas and uh, elite programs around the country, that's the case. You know, my, my role at Ohio State, I was just a small piece in the cog there. So uh, I think my responsibilities here at Texas is just a little bit more significant. Um, when I was at Ohio State, it was just uh, more with film and trying to contribute in that aspect and um, helping our, our coaches, instead of just simply watching a highlight tape, give them a little bit uh, more specific game cut-ups and, and help with that. So uh, here it's a little bit more of a, a grander oversight of, of everything. So you mentioned the people that are working with you. I've, I'm on the UT site right now on the staff directory, and it's, it looks like you have th- you're the director of player personnel. You have three assistant directors of player personnel, including one who's the lead graphic designer. I assume that means the the GIFs and and other things that we see on social media, <laughs> social media right. that are tailored to the recruits. Yeah, yeah. I'm, we have a. I don't even know to be honest with you how the different titles break down. You know, I think of recruiting as this, Stu and, and Bruce. I think there's four components to recruiting. I know uh, everyone has kind of different core values and pillars of the program. To me, and this is this is not rocket science. This is very basic tenets of recruiting. But I think there's the identification of players is the first component of recruiting. I think the evaluation of players, once you identify who you want to recruit, is the second component. I think your presentation of your brand is your third component of recruiting. And then your fourth component is your connection to the specific recruits that you've identified, evaluated, and presented your brand to. So identification, evaluation, presentation, and connection, I think, are kind of the four pillars of recruiting. So, again, I'm not sure exactly where everyone's titles break down, but I think the, you know, what you talked about with the GIFs and the social media, that's a very, very important aspect of recruiting now. I mean, you know, a, a recruit from the northeast part of the United States maybe just a few years ago didn't really know much about the University of Texas but now, you know, through social media, through Snapchat and Twitter and Instagram, they can get exposure, the same exposure to a kid in Houston, Texas, who's just two hours away from us because of what we present of our brand through these different social medias, with the exception of that kid not being able to get to our campus as easily. But those people who work in social media for us, who, who do the GIFs, who do the graphics, who do the videos, um, which I think, you know, our, our social media team is as strong as any in the country, uh, those who do that play such a vital role in our recruiting efforts, without question. How much do you do you get involved with in terms of just the evaluation, not just of what they get on film and what you, the film you guys get and the coaches see, but also, hey, I'm monitoring this kid on social media. I'm seeing, you know, like, or this is what I've heard about how this kid's interacting. It's almost like tracking their their personalities and go, you know what? I'm not sure this kid's a great fit for us. I know he's a really talented kid or that you get him on a, even if he shows up on an unofficial visit and maybe the position coach doesn't have all enough time to monitor everything. He maybe gets a, an hour window where you guys or somebody who you work with is around him for a whole day where you're like, eh, I don't think this is a, uh, you know, you go to Tom and say, I don't think this guy's really right for us at this point. Does that, has that happened a bunch? I'm sure it has. You know, I can't think of a specific example of, you know, where someone put something out on social media and it caused us, you know, to not recruit him anymore. I think that that's just a simple uh, window into a kid's personality. And sometimes, I mean, as and we all know through Twitter and Instagram and Snapchat, it's it's not always a true uh, reflection of who the kid is and who a person is is who they present themselves on social media. So, you know, what we try and do in recruiting is. Uh, information uh, gather, you know, so uh, social media, I guess study is, is important, but it's it's just one small component of learning about a kid 
on the field and off the field. I mean, we probably take a lot more stock in what a high school coach tells us about a kid who's who's around him, you know, 365 days a year. And also uh, when we're around him on campus, we, we usually have some people who can do a pretty good job of, of just analyzing their character and, and trying to figure out if they'd be a true fit within our, our program. Because not, not everyone's going to fit into what we're trying to do here in our culture. But I do think, you know, obviously, you know, what they post on social media is probably a little bit of a, a window into their personality. So Bruce and I are old enough to remember when there were no recruiting departments in these programs, when one of the assistant coaches was the recruiting coordinator, and you guys still have that in uh, Jason Washington. But as far as I know, 10 years ago, there was not a whole department behind the scenes just devoted to this. When you talk to veteran coaches, you know, what do they tell you about the good old days, if you will, and maybe how much more uh, advanced recruiting is now? Yeah, I think it speaks to what we talked about earlier with just the consistent communication that you need to have on a daily basis. And, you know, our coaches do a a terrific job of maintaining these relationships with these recruits. But it is an everyday thing where, you know, all the web of people that are involved in uh, recruiting and also just the the specific recruits themselves, there's a whole team of people that are assisting these recruits in their decision from parents to coaches to family members to high school trainers. There's so many different people that are involved in a recruit's decision. And so, you know, I think it helps to have the team of people that, that our department is to help you know, organize and, and help uh, assist in that communication. But yeah, I don't, I don't know, you know, I don't know about our coaches in, in the good old days of what um, they used to experience. I think it's just, you know, with social media and the, the evolution of um, what recruiting is now, it's, it's almost, I think it's almost unheard of to not have a department like ours just to, to assist our coaches and support support our coaches in recruiting. Well, uh, just to go back on on time. So about a dozen years ago, I worked on Meat Market, and it doesn't seem like to me that it was that long ago, but it was 12 years ago. So Ole Miss had the role that I think now a bunch of people serve, especially at big-time programs, would might shoehorn under the umbrella of director of football operations, but that role you know, could be any one of like five different things at some school, that would be the logistics person who arranged travel and and how the staff was going to be, you know, he was the coach's right-hand man. At Ole Miss, the director of football operations in a lot of ways also was the in-house recruiting coordinator. And maybe he had some mm-hmm. student workers and some GAs under him where they were getting film. Now, you know, film is online. It's It's a lot easier process. But it was just getting the film, getting transcripts, doing a lot of the paperwork and everything would fall under that that person's you know purview but also they would uh, typically it was it was murky as to whether the nca would allow that role to actually evaluate film you know it had to be evaluated by at least how Ole Miss had interpreted it had to really be evaluated officially by one of the Mm -hmm. on-field coaches now a lot has changed since 2005-6 but what i think is interesting and to go forward is especially as our in being Stu and me our world has gotten very chaotic in the careers part of it. I think there's a lot of people, and I think if I was in college right now, I would look at it and go, I would love to be in sports, work in sports. And the roles that I think are growing are some of the support staff as it relates to football. I see a lot of people who are in their thir- under 30 who have found roles in personnel and scouting, working with schools. And I say all that to get to this you're one of the few people I know who's in working in college football, who actually has three sports Emmy awards. You were a former ESPN guy, spent almost a decade there. Now I know Manny Diaz is a generation before you and Manny had, 
you know, I started at ESPN the same time Manny did, and obviously he's had a lot of success in football. Your path is a little different, though. I remember I think, meeting you at the Combine. So you had been at ESPN a long time, and then you crossed paths with Urban Meyer. Tell, tell us how you get from working at ESPN, working on college game day, helping Kirk Herbstreet out, working in the truck, doing all of that, to all of a sudden then you get some work or a part-time job or whatever it was to get you to Ohio State. Yeah, um, it's kind of in reflection several years later, very, very fortunate and, and blessed to think about, you know, I, I was at ESPN behind the scenes doing television production work um, for about eight years. And uh, six of those eight years, I was on college game day. So um, was, you know, again, very fortunate to travel around the country and see some beautiful campuses and go to some really special games. And my last year on college game day, my last year at ESPN, I was assigned to be Urban Meyer's producer. So, you know, in between his Florida and Ohio State job, um, I was, he was working at ESPN and I was helping him do weekly features on college game day along with Todd McShay. And we'd fly down to Gainesville, Florida every week and do kind of analytical film breakdown segments on, uh, on whatever the, you know, the, the player or team that was, you know, most relevant in, in football at that time. And got to know him decently well through that and, and learned a lot about the game of football. I mean, I'm, you know, I don't know uh, if you guys know my background, didn't play football, didn't coach football. So I've always been a sports fan, but um, wasn't around the game to the extent that a lot of people in my kind of profession um, are. And so, but I got to know Coach Meyer, you know, really well during that, you know, seven or eight month span. And then when he got hired at Ohio State late November, late November in uh, 2012, I believe, when, I, when he got hired there, you know, I asked him, I said, hey, uh, would you be willing to me come out, uh, willing for me to come out and, and spend some time with you guys in Columbus? I, you know, I don't want to be in the way. I just want to volunteer and, and maybe work in recruiting. And would you guys have any spots available for me to kind of help out? And, you know, really over the course of three or four months, he told me no a couple different times. And finally, you know, after a few months of me being relatively persistent without hopefully being an annoyance, uh, he finally relented and you know, I was 30 at the time. I had, you know, built, you know, a decent career at ESPN. Had worked there, like I said, eight years. And but I kind of started over in my career and, and volunteered at Ohio State as a recruiting assistant and helped. So are you making? Are you making any stuff. money at that point when you're volunteering? I think I got eventually put on like a kind of a camp check, a stipend. So I made you know a few thousand dollars a year. So um, you know, every every kind of month looking at the bank account um, was humbling, <laughs> but it was well worth the while. I mean, I mean, it was it was um, you know, in hindsight, it's kind of. Uh, funny how it's all turned out, but while I was at Ohio State for two and a half years, what I did was every single day I sat in uh, Coach Herman's position meeting room. So I sat in the quarterback meeting room and, and didn't say a word, but think about who the guys were in, in the room at that time was Braxton Miller, Kenny Guyton, Cardell Jones, and JT Barrett. I mean, as good of a quarterback room as you'll ever hear of, I would think. And so, and learned a lot you know, about the sport, learned a lot about you know, the different operations of college football and, and obviously you got to know Coach Herman really well at that time. And a few years later, that's how, you know, we're working together again. Now, did you then go back into television at Longhorn Network? Yeah, I did. So you, you talked about, Bruce, a little bit of what um, the different paths um, that people, you know, with all the support staff roles have here. You know, what I've seen in recruiting and, and kind of in support staff roles, a lot of people want to either do operations or they want to, become NFL scouts and work in personnel. For me, it was wanting to work in personnel, you know. So after being at Ohio State for a couple of years, I was trying to really work in the NFL as maybe an NFL scout or work in personnel and, you know, met some people and networked a little bit, but it never came to much fruition. So I, I did go end up going back into television and 
uh, working at Longhorn Network, which is a part of ESPN, and, and my alma mater is Texas. So um, it all made sense at the time to go back into television. But I was at Longhorn Network for almost about two years, and then uh, Coach Herman gave me a call and said, hey, our director of recruiting position is open. And, and mind you, at the time, I had kind of given up all dreams of working in football again and uh, just was kind of doing my uh, day-to-day at Longhorn Network. But he gave me a call and said, hey, our, our recruiting position is open. Would you be interested? And, you know, I'm from Houston. And, you know, my, my then fiance, now my wife, was in Houston. We were doing, uh, you know, semi-long distance between Austin and Houston. So it was a no-brainer for me, also, obviously, to work with Coach Herman again, who I respect so much. Um, it was a no-brainer for me to make that decision to, to kind of get back into football, and, and, and it's been a huge blessing for me. I'm just curious what it – so, it, I mean, this was not that long ago that you were at Longhorn Network covering Texas football. Now you are on the yeah. inside. You work You work for Texas football, and I'm curious, yeah. you know, once you started doing that, like what kind of things maybe have you noticed that if you look back, you're like – Oh, we weren't maybe we weren't covering that right, or we didn't fully understand how this this part of uh, Texas football works. Yeah, I mean, it probably wouldn't behoove me to go into specific examples, but yeah, I think I think it's funny to uh, kind of be on the outside and then the inside on really two different occasions in my career. Just knowing all the different um, intricacies that go into decision making um, on the inside, you know why specifically with recruiting, you know, why certain things happen the way they do, why, you know, staffs and coaches take chances on certain players and why they don't on others. And, you know, I, I think, you know, the fan or even media on the outside, don't, they're not just, they're not privy to that information. So, so there's obviously a lot of second guessing that happens on the outside. Even when I was um, on the media side covering it, you know, we would, you would maybe have certain opinions on, on why a staff does a certain thing, but really the, the difference is when you're on the inside, you just, you know, kind of all the different, uh, variables that are in play with those decisions. So, Derek, it sounds like you had a very serendipitous road here. You you get partnered up with Urban Meyer, and then Tom ends up get, getting the job down in your home area and everything. The timing seems just to be very fortuitous. I'm curious. So, when you're at UT as a as a student, what is what is is it in the back of your head? Hey, I'd like to go into TV, but God, someday I wish I could somehow end up in college football on that side. But it's a road you like. Did you volunteer in the in? You know, I guess Mac Brown would have been the head coach when you were a, a student. Like, how did you view what you want to do as opposed to maybe quote a dream job? Or did you think that was too too far fetched a fantasy to to kind of get back to get into the into the behind the door of of a real big time college football program? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I work with, we have some great student workers in our department and I'm very, I'm very, uh, just amazed at their ambition. I wasn't that way in college, to be honest with you. I mean, I, I enjoyed college and, and hung out with my friends and, but I don't know that I had a lot of direction. I, I think the one thing that I was, was kind of absolutely a big fan of sports, you know? Um, and so when I, when I heard of ESPN and, and saw that ESPN was at our communications fair, um, I applied for that job, and um, I, I don't know, if, Bruce, if you're familiar with this, you know, the kind of the interviews that, that for production assistants that they had in their introductory interviews, the, the first question I was asked when I was applying for a position with ESPN was, what's the starting lineup for the Chicago White Sox? You know, I mean, that's what those interviews to work at ESPN were, were for. And, and so that, that's all I had, you know, uh, in college was just kind of an ambition to, to kind of work in sports. But to say, you know, 13 or 14 years later that it would be back at my alma mater, kind of in, in personnel with, you know, the, the university that I care so much about and the football team that I care so much about, 
probably wouldn't have dreamt it. But, you know, my only tie to the school when I was here, I didn't work with Mac Brown. I wasn't part of the program. I was just um, someone who was a fan and attended the games kind of on a weekly basis. So um, it, it's been really um, kind of a, a blessing to kind of see how it's all played out. Hey, Stu, by the way, on my interview, and this is uh, whatever, probably a dozen years before Derek was there, I remember I got a question about, like, break down the pitching of the NL West. <laughs> and I also got one, who do you think should win the Vesna Trophy? And I, I'm not a big hockey person, but that was, like, the <laughs> one award I probably knew what it was. Now, I don't know if my answer, the right, I gave the right goalie, but it was a, it was definitely an inter- interesting interview process I, uh, different than anything else I had had. I would have flunked both of those tests, to, to say the least. <laughs> well, real quick, bringing it kind of back to the present now, just give us an idea of... You know, I think after this past signing day is when most fans start turning their attention to the 2019 class. But I know you guys have probably been working on it for a while. I mean, how 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 long have, has this class already been underway from your perspective? And, and what kind of things are you focused on right now? You know, although they haven't been our primary focus, the 2019 class is it's only one that we've been recruiting really hard, you know, for the last year or so. I mean, just to give you kind of a perspective on you know, how, how uh, accelerated recruiting is. I mean, 2020s, 2021, so those are sophomore and freshmen in high school. And we have a pretty good grasp of the best ones in this area and this region. So anytime those kids want to come to our campus, we welcome them with open arms. And it's important for them to meet with the right people um, when they're on campus here um, that's related to our uh, program. So um, it's, yeah, it's crazy. You know, it's crazy how accelerated um, recruiting has gotten. But 2019 uh, class, I mean, we've you know, we built really good relationships with those kids already, you know, for the last year, year, two years, whatever it is. And so uh, we're going to continue to do that um, as they become kind of the main focus now with the 2018 class wrapped up. All right, Derek, we appreciate your time. And, and uh, I think your story is inspirational for a lot of reasons for, uh, you know, our listeners, especially if they're younger and aspire to getting involved in something like major college football. And they think maybe they don't have you know, the ideal, you know, they weren't a star player in college or weren't, you know, in high school and, and think, oh, I can never possibly do that. And, or I'm sure it was probably crushing when Urban told you, nah, I don't think, I don't think you can do that the first (laughs) couple of times you did that. And then to end up at Texas, obviously it needs, you know, timing has to be right and a lot of other circumstance, but I think it's very cool that you were able to follow a passion and it's led you to this. So I'm, uh, we're certainly happy for you, and we appreciate your, all the insight you've given us today on, uh, on not just what you do, but how you guys do it. Thanks, Bruce. Thanks, too. I appreciate you guys having me on. Thank you. All right, well, we hope you enjoyed this rare double header of guests on the Audible. For time reasons, we're not able to get to mailbag questions this week, but we will certainly do it next week. So send your questions to theaudiblepod at gmail.com, and we'll see you next time. If you enjoy our podcast and you haven't subscribed, what are you waiting for? Please subscribe to The Audible on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get podcasts. Give us a five-star review while you're there. We'd like to thank our presenting sponsor for 2018, Trader Joe's, for making this possible. I'd like to thank our producer, Nick Fink. Subscribe to my college football site, The All-American. Go to theathletic.com slash theaudible and you'll get... 20% off of this annual subscription and if you aren't following us on Twitter already you can do so Bruce is Bruce Feldman CFB and Stu is SL Mandel see you next time Come on, get over